Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 13, in which Paul will defend his apostolic authority. Our context is this. In the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has bemoaned the Corinthians' predilection for Greek philosophy and for dividing themselves up into factions. Now, some were Paul, he says. Some of you are saying you're for Apollos. Some are saying you are for Cephas. And some are being very super spiritual and saying you're following Christ alone. And I suspect that those who were following, following Apollos and Cephas and Christ were denigrating Paul because they weren't following Paul, despite the fact that Paul started their church. And so after Paul kept, after he has told them in the previous chapters, look, it doesn't matter who started the church. We're all co-workers working on the field of the church, working to build the church building. He uses these various metaphors, working as priest in the temple. He uses all these metaphors, and he's talked about how that no one apostle is above another apostle. They all belong to the church. But now, after he has done that, he now is going to say, but look, I am an apostle. He, he's, he's previously said that it doesn't matter who, what an apostle is, which apostle it is that has ministered to the church of Corinth. However, on the other hand, in chapter 4, my apostolic authority is very valuable to you, and I'm going to assert it right now. So we start now in verses 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says this, Let a man regard us, and I'm assuming the us is an editorial we, he says, let a man regard me, Paul, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the ministries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now what Paul is doing, he's stating the standard that needs to be stated, needs to be held for an apostle, and he's going to say, I meet that standard. I will be found trustworthy. But before he does that, he points out that us, and if it might be the editorial we, Paul, but he also could be referring to Apollos and all the other apostles and workers in Corinth. But all of us are servants of Christ. Servants. A slave. That's humble. And stewards of the mystery of, of God. Stewards of the house, not owners of the house. Stewards are much more humble. Who's the owner of the house? God. Who's the master? Christ. That's what's important, not us. But even though we're not as important as the owner of the house, we're not as important as God. And although we're not important as important as our master, we're servants of him and we're stewards of the house of God. Nonetheless, servants and stewards have got to be trustworthy in the natural world and also in the church world. And so Paul is going to show how he is trustworthy. Now, Paul says that we, the apostles, were either he or the other apostles, were stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, mysteries is a word that refers to secrets that human beings cannot uncover, but God has revealed them now. The old use of the word referring to the mystery religions was this. A mystery is something that is hidden and cannot be revealed, and nobody's ever going to know, and you're going to keep it quiet forever, like the Eleusinian mysteries in Greece. To this day, scholars don't know what went on in those ceremonies. Paul doesn't use it that way, though. The mysteries of God are something that is going to be revealed to the world, and the apostles are going to help reveal it. He uses that word a lot. I have a lot of scriptures. I'll just read one of them to you, Romans 11:25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. See, I don't want you to be uninformed because I'm going to reveal it. 
Christian mysteries are revealed by the apostles. They're not hidden. Now, Paul has just finished saying in chapter 3 that the Corinthians should not regard ministers as everything. But as John Gill says, and I've already mentioned this, but in this case, he's going to go to the other side of the coin and say, but they're still worthy of respect. They're not everything, but they are something. They were to be respected as servants, but not as leaders of a faction. They were to be respected as stewards, but not owners of the house. Now, Adam Clark illuminates the word servant. It's not the word for slave that's often used. It's the word huperites. Quote from Adam Clark, The word huperites means an underroar, or one who, in the trireme, quadrireme, or quinquireme galleys, rode in one of the undermost benches. But it means also, as used by the Greek writers, any inferior officer or assistant. By the term here, the apostle shows the Corinthians that far from being heads and chief, he and his fellow apostles considered themselves only as inferior officers employed under Christ. And my view that that might be regarded, that us might be the editorial we, referring only to Paul, Jameson Fawcett Brown said no, it refers to Paul and Apollos. Adam Clark here assumes the same, so I take it back. Let a man regard all the apostles as servants of Christ and stewards of the ministry of God. We go to verse 3. 1 Corinthians 4, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Now, it, he said it's a small thing. He didn't say it was nothing to be judged by the Corinthians because obviously the Corinthians have got to judge the ministers in their, in their midst. That's the job of a church. That's just common sense. But compared to God's judgment, it was small. And what Paul is, Paul has never deprives the Corinthians of their right to make judgments about their workers. But what he's saying is you ought to do it rightly. You ought to use your power to judge in a reasonable way. And don't think that you're superior to the people that you're judging, especially to the man who started your church and who has done nothing wrong, but has done nothing but good for you. So Paul says, look, you want to judge me and say that I'm not a, a, I, I can't be listened to because you're following Apollos or Cephas or that's no big deal to me, because you're not the one who judges me as far as my apostolic authority goes. It's God that does. Now, Paul says, I don't even examine myself. Paul knows he is human, and his judgment not, might not be God's judgment. So he's saying, look, I don't even judge myself to see whether I am worthy as an apostle. But what he implies here is God judges him as worthy of being an apostle. Now, this phrase right here can be confusing because if you overapply it and say that Paul never examines himself at all, well, that's not true. I mean, in the very next verse, he says this, I am conscious of nothing against myself. Well, how can he be conscious of nothing against himself unless he's examining himself? And then he says, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So what he's talking about is being examined as an apostle. He says, I don't even examine myself as an apostle. I'll let God do that. And he does admit that they can examine him as an apostle. He never says they can't, but he says it's a small thing compared to God examining me as an apostle. And once again, going back to the idea, does Paul ever examine himself for spiritual things? Well, remember when he said, when he said, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, 2 Corinthians thirteen five. would Paul tell others to do what he would not do? If others are supposed to examine themselves, examine their spiritual condition, you mean Paul's not going to do that? He's not going to practice what he preached? No, he's not talking about examining himself spiritually. 
He's talking about he doesn't examine himself as an apostle because he lets God do that. And in addition, he's saying, I don't examine myself as an apostle for the Corinthian church. He's not talking about in general. He's talking about specifically, I don't examine myself to see whether I'm qualified to be your apostle, guys. So you ought not to do it either. Let God decide. And it means examine and approve. I think the idea of approval is in there. I don't examine myself to see if I'm approved as an apostle. And the implication is, but God does. And God, and as he's going to show later in this section here, he's got plenty of proof that he is a worthy apostle. And it's Jesus that approves him as a worthy apostle. You don't need to listen to the apostle Paul to show that the apostle Paul is a worthy apostle. You need to listen to God that shows that the apostle Paul is the apostle Paul. I mean, didn't he say to the Corinthians, called as an apostle in the salutation, as he does in most of his, or many of his writings? John Gill backs me up on this. He says this, when Paul says, I do not even examine myself, this does not mean that Paul never made judgments about his own beliefs and actions. It just meant that Paul was not going to stand or fall based on his own judgment. Quote from Gill, he judged all things, and so himself, his conduct, state, and conditioned, examined his own heart and ways, and was able to form a judgment of what he was, and he did. Yet he chose not to stand and fall by his own judgment. In other words, he looks at himself all right, but if he, if he finds something good, it's because Jesus put it there, and Jesus approves it, not because he approves it. One more point about this examined business. He says, I do not even examine myself. Paul is not saying he was above the judgment of each and every church, as John Gill says. He is saying he's not going to be judged by the Corinthian church because it was full of factionalists and false teachers by those who preferred Apollos or Cephas or Christ over Paul. That's who he's not going to be judged by. That's not who he's going to be examined by. But Paul would never put himself over the church universal and say, I know everything because I'm the Pope. He would never do that. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 5, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, I do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And of course, Paul is alluding to the improper motives of the people who are accusing his authority, who are denigrating his authority in Corinth. Those things that are hidden in the hearts of his enemies, hidden in the darkness. And those motives, those hidden motives will be disclosed by God at the judgment day. Now, he never goes out and accuses them outright of their motives. You can't do that because how can you prove somebody's got bad motives? So he doesn't really go out and do that, but he says, but hey, one day people's hidden motives are going to be examined. And when that happens, I'm not worried. Jesus will do that. He's, so he's kind of hinting around. He, he doesn't directly say it, but he's hinting around that these guys' motives are not pure. And when the time comes and God brings everything to light, each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, people are not going to be praising themselves like you false apostles are doing. Oh, I'm a, I am, well, or, or at least receiving, oh, the Corinthians say that Apollos is a great ap apostle. They're getting their praise from men. Apollos is getting his praise from men in that case. Whether Apollos was doing this on purpose or not, I don't think he was, but the people were giving him praise, and that praise didn't come from God. It was coming from men. And Paul's saying, no, nah, let's wait. Let's wait until God judges every man's heart, and we'll get our praise from God. 
instead of men. And of course, Paul is implying that his praise is going to come from God because he doesn't rely on praise from men. So he tells these Corinthians who are passing judgment on him, don't go on passing judgment before the time. What time is that? Well, then I've studied Bible quotes, 1 Corinthians 3.13, to show this. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it, it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Well, of course, day is deliciously ambiguous all through the scriptures. It's a day of judgment, but which day of judgment is it? And so it doesn't really matter to me what day it is, but here's some options. could be judgment day at the end of time, as the NIV study Bible says. It could be eighty seventy, as John Gill suggests, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirms. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. There is much difference of opinion relative to the meaning of the terms in this and the two following verses. That the apostle refers to the approaching destruction of Jerusalem, I think very probable. And when this is considered, all the terms and metaphors will appear clear and consistent. So it's either the end of time or 8070. That's an old, old problem that comes up every time you see that word time or judgment time or judgment day. Now, of course, the judgment on Jerusalem, well, the next question you would ask Mr. Clark was, well, what, how's that going to affect Corinth? Well, remember, there's a lot of Jews in Corinth. If you read the book of Acts, in Acts 18, the Jews did a number on Paul and the apostles, screaming and hollering at them, starting a, starting a near riot, taking Paul before Gallio. That's not going to happen after AD 70. And then a lot of people's accusing tongues would be stopped. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that at some time, people's hidden motives are going to be disclosed, and if your motives are pure, as Paul's were, he's going to be justified and vindicated, and these false apostles who are dividing the church up with their factions, they're going to be condemned. This idea of disclosing the motives of men's hearts, it's in the scriptures, Psalms 19.12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The sins of the heart, if you will. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So you see, we need God to search our hearts. Like Paul says, I don't even examine myself. Now what that means is, is he doesn't ultimately examine himself. It doesn't mean he doesn't look to see if there's sin in his life. It means that ultimately God's got to reveal that sin. He looks and he says, okay, God, I don't see a, a sin in my life. And then so you say, search me, O God. You find the hidden sins, my problems, and straighten me out. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that's another way you can know what's inside your heart. Not just praying about it, but reading the Word. And where you say, ooh, I don't love my enemy. So the, so the Bible, the Word of the Lord, the written Word of the Lord, in that case, reflecting the spoken Word of Jesus, judges the thoughts and intentions of one's heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you see, early Christians were very aware that hypocrisy is not going to get anywhere with God. He sees our hearts, and he'll judge based on those motives, on the things hidden in the darkness. And he's going to disclose the motives of men's hearts, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 through 5. Now let me repeat here. Paul is not saying that the Corinthians don't have the right to exercise church discipline. However, their church discipline runs only to the boundary of the church. And Paul did a lot of stuff outside of the Corinthian church. And he was going to be judged for all that stuff before the tribunal of God, not the Corinthians. 
The hidden motives of the heart, John Gill says, could either refer to vices or secret arts and private methods false teachers use to conceal themselves. And Paul in verse 5 when he says, then each man's praise will come to him from God. Each man's praise will come to him from God. Do you realize God's going to praise us? The creator of the universe will actually praise Christians and say, hey, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a great idea to contemplate for those who have a bad self-image of who you are in Christ. That phrase, man's, and each man's praise will come to him from God. It, Paul could be referring to each apostle's praise. Apollos' praise will come from God. Cephas' will and Paul's praise will come from God. That's reasonable. It could be. But it could also refer to everybody, every Christian in general. I won't take a stand on that. We go to 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So then, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now what things is Paul talking about? He's referring back to chapters 3, starting with verse 5, all the way up to our current verse here in verse 6, through verse 5 according to the NIV study Bible and Adam Clark. And in that section, he's talked about three metaphors. Paul and Apollos were laborers in a field, and farm laborers are humble. The field is what's important. The crop's what's important. That's the church. The field workers are humble. Paul, in that section, Paul compares Paul and Apollos to builders of a building, stonemasons and carpenters. They're humble. What's important is the building, not the not the construction workers, and Paul and Apollos are the construction workers. And then the other metaphor he used, ministers in a temple. Well, who's important in a temple? The God who lives in the temple or the priest who minister in the temple? Well, Paul and Apollos are mere priests working in the temple, to use those metaphors. Okay, So he's pointed out that church workers are humble. So he has figuratively applied to himself and Apollos for your sakes to teach you for your sakes, so that in us, Paul and Apollos, you may learn not to exceed what is written. In other words, that you not learn not to be proud, so that no one of you will become arrogant, because, as I said, laborers in a field are humble, humble, builders of a building are humble, and ministers in a temple are humble. They're humble. So workers in the body of Christ need to be and are humble. So don't go around saying, hey, hey Paul's a, Apollos is an apostle and Cephas is an apostle. And I'm in charge of the Apollos faction, and so I'm a big shot. And you people that follow Cephas aren't any good. Remember, the the factions were not really started by Apollos and Cephas. That wasn't their fault. It was the Corinthians' fault for lifting them up. And I will say this, in the modern church, you will see people do this. I know people that will roll over and have convulsions if you say anything in the slightest bit critical of John MacArthur. They're, I call them McCarthyites. It's just unbelievable. I have to be very careful because I don't agree with about 90% of what McCarthy believes. I do believe in the Nicene Creed, and I think he does too. But other than that, there ain't much else. And so if I mention something that contradicts MacArthur, I just say, a certain brother. Because, <laughs> by golly, people will leave the church if you say something bad about MacArthur. Well, no. We ought not to be that way. We don't need to lift up one teacher over another. All, listen, John MacArthur belongs to me. If he says something I agree with, and every now and then he does, and I say, well, that's pretty good. I'll quote him. Hey, John MacArthur says this. I, even the other day, was thinking with John MacArthur. I think it was MacArthur who was at Dallas Seminary, and one of these carnal Christian, easy-believing type theologians was riding with him to the airport, if I remember the story, and they saw somebody working in a, they saw a strip joint or something, or a bar or something on the side of the road, and 
And the Dallas professor said, hey, that's one of my former students in there. He's backslidden. He's a, he was a good Christian guy. And MacArthur says, wait a minute. I don't think that guy's saved. And so they would go to the lordship salvation controversy. Well, if MacArthur says something in that controversy, I agree with. That's fine because we're all in this together, folks, even if he is misguided about cessationism. So verse 6, going back to 1 Corinthians 4, all workers in the body of Christ and all believers in the body of Christ need to be humble and not be arrogant in behalf of one against another. In other words, not be arrogant, not arrogantly say that Paul is more important than Cephas or Cephas is more important than Paul. What does he mean not to exceed what is written? Well, that's not written in the scriptures, actually. So here's some options. It could refer to, it, well, let's put it this way. It's not directly written in the scriptures. It's not in the Old Testament, let's put it that way. So that's not what it is. It could have been referring to scriptures in general with no one particular passage in mind because the scriptures tend to exalt humility, if I might put it that way. It could be that, or it could be referring to a rabbinic proverb, a proverb that was current among the rabbis. In fact, the NIV translation tends to take it that way because they translate it as so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. In other words, not as it is written, which sounds like scripture, but they translate it as so that you may learn from the meaning of the saying, the proverb. I think that's what it is. I don't think he's referring to any particular scripture. Now, Paul talks about humility a lot in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. so that just as, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting Old Testament scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.19-20. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. That's a quote from the Old Testament scripture. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Another quote from the Old Testament scripture. Now, Paul also states in Romans 12:3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, each uh, kind of spiritual gift everybody has one so don't go thinking that you got all the gifts humility don't leave home without it we go to verse 7 in first corinthians 4 for who regards you as superior what do you have that you do, did not receive and if you did receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it now who is paul talking to for who regards you as superior well he could be talking directly to the puffed up teachers at corinth as adam clark says but i tend to think it was referring to the corinthian christians in general they thought they were superior to Paul. Those that followed Cephas did, and those that followed Apollos did. Well, we follow Cephas. We don't follow that nobody, Paul. We we just 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 Jesus. We follow Christ, and we don't listen to Paul. He's just a mere apostle. Sounds like a liberal. Well, I think it's the whole church. I mean, after all, in the previous verse, Paul says, "No one of you should become arrogant in behalf of one against the other, in behalf of, in other words, by promoting Apollos or Paul or Cephas." What did you have that you did not, did not receive? That's probably the grace from God in general. Everything you've got, you can't got from God. And if you received it, why do you act like you didn't receive it? Like, you, like it's, it's yours and not God's. He could be more particularly talking about what did you have that you did not receive? In other words, what teaching did you get? Unless it came from an apostle, such as yours truly, such as Paul. So you've got the teaching from me, so why do you boast like, I don't want to follow Paul, I'm going to follow Apollos, I got my teaching from Apollos. Or it could be that they were being proud in general and, and bragging that they had got their teaching from Paul and not from Apollos, or they got it from Cephas and not from Paul. It doesn't matter. 
whatever teaching they got, they received it from somebody, and so they ought not to be proud about it and exalting themselves one over another. Or it could just be that Paul is referring to here the grace of God. What grace did you receive from God that you did not receive? It all comes from God. Now, John Gill's got an interesting quote here. This is a little bit off topic. He, here's a quote. That proud Arminian Grevenkovius, in answer to this text, said, I make myself to differ, i.e. be more superior, since I could resist God and divine predetermination, but I have not resisted. And why may not I glory in it as of my own? Ooh, I hope that most responsible Arminians will never quote that Arminian because he's arrogant. I resisted God's. I did. I, it was me that didn't resist God, and so I can glory in it. No, you didn't. Your salvation came from God, so don't be bragging about. You know, it just kills me. Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, says, I can't work. I think it's proud and arrogant. Christians are acting like they got something that everybody doesn't have. Listen, it's true that Christians have something that everybody doesn't have. That's called salvation. But the salvation came from God, and so there's no room for boasting. Any Christian that boasts that way is a fool. In fact, I've never heard one. All it is is a stupid stereotype perpetrated by people who don't know what the Hades they're talking about. 1 Corinthians 4, eight. Paul continues, For you, Corinthians, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Now here, I think Paul is using the editorial we, so he's talking about himself. And so he says he's contrasting himself, his condition, with the condition of the Corinthians. To summarize it, the Corinthians are rich and Paul is poor. Paul is being sarcastic here, as Adam Clark, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown, in NIV Study Bible, point out. He wants to show how spiritually poor they are. So he says, you're already filled with all the spiritual gifts and with all the wisdom of the Greeks. You're filled and you're rich. But what he wants to show them is how poor they actually were because they were dumb enough to raise themselves up over their apostle Paul, the Paul who started their church. Adam Clark says this must have stung them to their heart. Hmm, I don't know about that. It might. Hopefully it did. It probably did, but I'm not so sure. These people were pretty arrogant. They were rich. By the way, they were rich not only in Greek wisdom, rich in spiritual gifts, too, as we'll see when we get to, to chapter 12. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with being wise. There's nothing wrong with spiritual gifts, but it's when you become arrogant about it, it's very, very wrong. Paul says, I wish that you would become kings so that we might reign with you. Well, now, obviously, the Corinthians aren't kings, so why does Paul wish that they become kings? Well, now, this is interesting because I always just assume that Paul is continuing his sarcasm here. And by the way, doesn't that show Jesus used sarcasm? Paul used sarcasm. It just amazes me. I, I like to use irony in writing, and I, I say something ironic about somebody, and, oh, you ought to hear the emails. You are not showing love, brother. You are so, so sarcastic. And I say, really? Sarcasm is a sin? Well, how do you explain the fact that Jesus and Paul used it? Was Jesus a sinner? Was Paul a sinner? Well, here we have, see, I'm just using sarcasm right then. <laughs> so, no, there's nothing wrong with using sarcasm, and Paul's using sarcasm in this verse. And when he says, I wish that you'd become king so we might reign with you, I think he's still being sarcastic. That's one option. The commentator, Meyer, New Testament Meyer, the Meyer New Testament commentary agrees with me on that. However, there's a lot of people who disagree. Adam Barnes, for example, says that many people interpret this literally. Paul is wishing that the Corinthians would be kings so that they could protect Paul in his persecution and troubles. And he quotes, listen to these high-powered dudes, Grotius, Whitby, and Locke. John Locke, 
the founder of America and the Constitution. Grotius, Whitby, and Locke all say that Paul is talking straight here. I wish that you would literally become king so that I can be a king too. I won't be persecuted and be the scum of the earth and the dregs of the earth like I have been. Well, I don't believe that, quite frankly. Here's another option. This is quoting the great John Calvin and Lightfoot, and the Ellicott commentary agrees with them, that Paul is talking here metaphorically, but with serious intent. He doesn't literally mean that he wants to be kings, but he's not being ironic. He's not being sarcastic. He's saying, hey, man, I wish you could become a king so that we, you, we, so that I might reign with you, so that, so, so that, so that you Corinthians can be as truly happy and blessed as you thought yourself to be. I don't think so. I think Paul's being sarcastic. He's saying, "Hey, you big shot kings, look at me." He's getting ready to point out how he's the scum of the earth compared to you big shot kings that they're over there in Corinth. First Corinthians four nine. For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, the four there in the beginning of verse 9 is, is to explain why it would be nice to Paul to be able to reign with the Corinthians as kings. I wish I could reign with you as a kings because God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, and I'm tired of being last, and I want to be a king. So... What does he mean by being exhibited as apostles last of all? Well, we need to focus on the words exhibited and spectacle, and I think we can understand this, but let's give some options as to what it means to be exhibited last of all. John Gill says, last in time compared to the prophets and the patriarchs. I don't think Gill's right about that. He suggests that. He doesn't necessarily agree with it. He suggests that Paul is saying, he wants to be exhibited last compared with Jesus' original 12 apostles as one untimely born. Gill suggests that. No. He wants to be last in the esteem of men, and I think that's what it is. But I think more particularly, how are you exhibited as last in the esteem of men? Because you are last in the schedule of a gladiatorial combat. That's another option, and I'll explain that further in a minute. Or it's because you're last in a triumphal procession, as in the Roman Empire, when the conquering general carried his had a parade, and all the conquering generals and officers and heroes were in the first of the parade, and the, the defeated generals were prisoners of war, rolled along in cages, exhibited last of all. In fact, the NIV apparently takes that view because they translate this, God has exhibited us apostles as in the end of the procession, and that very well could be. But I like the idea of being last up on the gladiatorial program. Let me give you a quote from Adam Clark, who is quoting the great commentator Whitby. Quote, this whole passage is well explained by Dr. Whitby. Here the apostle seems to allude to the Roman spectacles, that of the bestiari, the beast and the gladiators, where in the morning men were brought upon the theaters to fight with wild beasts and to them was allowed armor to defend themselves and smite the beast that assailed them. But in the meridian or noonday spectacles, the gladiators were brought forth naked and without anything to defend themselves from the sword of the assailant. And he that then escaped was only kept for slaughter to another day, so that these men might well be called men appointed for death. And this being the last appearance on the theater for that day, they are said to be set forth eschatoi, the last. The last on the program means they're fighting without armor and getting ready to be killed, either in that day or the next day. And so they've become a spectacle to the world. 
and not only to the world, but to angels and to men. Angels could be good angels or bad angels, demons, doesn't matter, either one. The supernatural world's looking on, the natural world's looking on, and we are scum. We are a spectacle to the world. Paul continues in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 4, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Now again, Paul is being sarcastic again. He's not a fool. He's a fool in the eyes of the world, for Christ's sake. So I guess he might not be an ironic there. He literally is a fool in the eyes of the world, but not in the eyes of God. But you are prudent in Christ. I think he's being sarcastic there. I don't think they're prudent in Christ. He's referring to their boast about all that Greek knowledge and rhetoric, Greek philosophy and rhetoric that they prided themselves in. The NIV study Bible says Paul is using sarcasm again, or irony, continuing with the idea that being exhibited last in the gladiatorial arena, that would fit with this verse here, we are fools for Christ's sake, because when you were a, glad, when you were a gladiator fighting the beast, the crowds at these Roman spectacles hissed, booed, hooted, and mocked the victims. That's pretty degrading. So while we are being mocked for our faith as we try to preach the gospel, going around setting up churches. And look at the persecution we underwent in Corinth when we established the church in Corinth for you, for you guys. We were made out to be fools by the persecuting Jews, but now you know it all. You've got all the knowledge you need because you're reading Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. We're weak. Now, Paul's probably not being ironic here because Paul's bodily presence was not impressive. For 2 Corinthians 10, 10, he actually says that. For they say, his opponents say... To, his letters are witty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And Paul probably is conceding there that he didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. His speech was contemptible, because in that same verse, 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul quotes his enemies, his enemies as saying, his speech is of no account. So apparently he couldn't speak, and he didn't look all that great. I don't know why pictures of Paul always have him with a bald head and short and bent over like he has osteoporosis. I don't know why, but, you know, he did you know, he looked weak. But you Corinthians, you know it all. You're strong. As Gill puts it, you are men of great parts, strong voice, masculine language, and powerful oratory. And you abound in outward prosperity and are free from persecution for the cross of Christ. Yeah, you got it made, Corinthians. I'm out here getting whipped and thrown in jail. And you guys are going around quoting Aristotle. 1 Corinthians 4, 11-13, we'll finish this audio up. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands, whom we, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Ooh, what a contrast. Now, in the midst of all those bad things, being hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated, and being homeless, Paul says we toil. Sounds like Paul didn't like his tent-making job too much. And notice he wrote this book from Ephesus, so it means he's toiling in Ephesus. In another place, it says he toiled in, in Corinth also, Acts 18.3, because he, Aquila, was of the same trade, tent-making. He, Paul, stayed with them, Aquila and Priscilla, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent-makers. And... To confirm that Paul was working at Ephesus as a tent maker, we go to Acts 20, verses 34 through 35. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus on the way back home on the third journey. Paul says this, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. 
In everything I showed that you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said is more blessed to give than receive. So Paul worked hard with his hands in Ephesus. That's, that's a lot harder than sitting around quoting Plato. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, do, Or do only Barnabas and I, and I not have the right to refrain from working? He had the right to refrain from working, but he gave up that right so as not to cause scandal, which means if he gave up the right to work, that means he was working in Corinth, as we already know from Acts 18. So Paul worked hard. There is nothing degrading about a minister of the gospel using his hands to make money. Paul didn't have that typical Greek snotty attitude toward manual labor, that aristocratic Greek attitude, oh, labor, oh, it's terrible. Well, they, farm labor was all right, but manual labor like making tents, oh, that's nasty. Paul, hey, in the Greek world, that was considered very, very degrading, but he did it. He didn't care. Paul says in this passage, when we are reviled, we bless this recalls Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12:14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's Paul saying that. And Luke quotes Jesus in Luke 23:34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's Jesus on the cross, forgiving our enemies. And Paul says, when we are Revile, we bless. And I'm going to tell you something. That's a, these are important scriptures to know because we are living in a time when Christians are reviled in America. Christians are reviled something terribly now. It's horrible what people say about Christians. I just, looking at my photos, I went to a, a museum, a leftist museum in Atlanta. I, don't, I didn't know it was going to be that way when I went in there. And I went in there. It was a bunch of left-wing art. And they had some artwork showing and I took a picture of it, and it says, Stop the Christians, and I hate the church, and things like that. Just openly, blatantly opposed to Jesus. So that's the kind of culture we live in now, and my tendency is to say, to Gehenna with you people, and walk out of there and get, try to ask for my money back. But hey, you can't do that. You know, you just can't. As a Christian, you have to pray for these morons. I pray for the secular left periodically. I pray that God would redeem out of that secular left culture, that antichrist culture, people who are like the Apostle Paul, who are blind, but then they see. Paul says he was poorly clothed in verse 11. I guess Paul didn't have as much faith as Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn, who were living in $20 million mansions. Now, Paul says he is the scum of the earth in verse 13. We have become as the scum of the world or the scum of the earth. Gill says Paul, Gill says that some people say that Paul is referring to Lamentations 3:45, which says this: "You have made us mere offscouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples." And that might be. But now let's let's unpack those words. The translate it's lost in translation here, as Adam Clark says. Now this is an interesting quote. The Greek word which we render filth in the King James, the Holy Christian Study Bible, has it as scum. Paul is filth. Paul is scum. Is Perikathermata, perikathermata, which is a purgation or lustrative sacrifice. A lustrative sacrifice is a sacrifice having to do with a purification ceremony. So Paul is a sacrifice, which doesn't sound too bad yet. And then the word that we translate offscouring, King James, Homer Christian Study Bible is dreg, is peripsema, which is a redemption sacrifice. So we have a purification sacrifice and a redemption sacrifice. Well, what's so bad about that? 
And that's why you have English translations that have scum and dregs, because that you know, sounds a little negative. But Clark continues, To understand the full force of these words, as applied by the apostle in this place, we must observe that he alludes to certain customs among the heathens, who in the time of some public calamity chose out some unhappy men of the most abject and despicable character to be a public expiation for them. These they maintained a whole year at the public expense, and then they led them out, crowned with flowers, as was customary in sacrifices, and having heaped all the curses of the country upon their heads, and having whipped them seven times, they burned them alive, and afterwards their ashes were thrown into the sea, while the people said these words, quote, Be thou our propitiation. Sometimes the person thus chosen was thrown into the sea as a sacrifice to Neptune, the people saying the words as before, Be thou our propitiation. The apostle, therefore, means that he and his fellows were treated like those wretched beings who were judged to be fit for nothing but to be expiatory victims to the infernal gods for the safety and redemption of others. Our words, filth and offscouring, convey no legitimate sense of the original. So Paul is saying, man, we're human sacrifices. That's what we are. So when you see that word, filth, and those two words, filth and dregs, think about Paul being put upon an altar and burnt to death. Because that's how he was treated as an apostle as he spread the gospel of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with this audio, verse 13. And our next audio, I'm going to start with verse 14 and go to the end of chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, Paul continues with the defense of his apostolic authority. But he also now tries to soften the blow a little bit about all these rough things he said to the Corinthians and tries to appeal to them as a father in Christ. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 